a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Right now, we are joined by the voice of the Minnesota Timberwolves, Alan Horton. And today, the uh, Say the Damn Score mobile studio is in a Starbucks in Minneapolis. And Alan, first and foremost, just thanks for coming down and coming on. Logan, you bet, man. Happy to be here. And uh, you got a great little spot here. This should be like the permanent home of the podcast, <laughs> I think. It's a nice little nook here. We got some privacy and... Uh, Happy to be with you. Is this is this a Starbucks that you come to frequently? Because you said they didn't know that they had this nook back here. No, I didn't. I've I've been here a few times, but uh, normally I'm a I'm a coffee at home type guy and, uh, and and don't get out too much to the coffee shops. But uh, but this works. So you're firmly in the off season, starting to wind down a little bit. What do you do during your off seasons for the Timberwolves? Well, it went a little bit later than uh, normal this year, which was a good thing, you know, <laughs> making the playoffs for the first time since uh, in my tenure here uh, and since 2004 for the organization. Uh, but you kind of wind down in, in uh, you know, in late April and May. Um, but there's always, you know, the NBA now has just become a, a 24-7, 365 day a year um, kind of event because there's always something coming up. It's the draft lottery. It's the, um, it's the you know, the camps in Chicago for the for the potential rookies and then you got the draft and then you've got summer league and actually a little mini camp before summer league um and then you've got free agency and and august is kind of a downtime that's when most organizations will kind of their coaches will take a break um everybody backs away for a week two weeks three weeks um and then gets back to it before you get to training camp in september so do you try to go on a trip or do something unique or take on some sort of experiences during August when you have that time? You know, it's um, I, I do get a lot of time throughout the summer. We do events um, with season ticket members, with prospective members. We have players coming back once in a while. Um, so we'll host different events, have some press conferences um, for new players or the rookies that come in. Um, and so there's always seems to be something to kind of pull you back in, which is good. Uh, but mostly it's some downtime. And, 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 you know, the way any kind of league works, you just – you're on from um, October to mid-April for those six months, and then right when it, whenever it does end, you try to get your life back. You try to get things organized with your family. You get to some projects that um, you know you've had to push to the side for, for for six months because you just don't have the time. It's just it's practices, it's games, it's travel, it's um it's one thing after another. So you've managed in your career to live on both coasts and the midwest yeah are from rural massachusetts take us back to those days and when did you find out that you knew you wanted to be in in sports casting was it something you knew from the beginning or something you found out later? i I think it was something that was kind of bubbling under the surface and i didn't quite recognize it until um you know until i got out of college i went to skidmore college in saratoga springs new york then went to wyoming for a few years to be uh to to ski and just to work out there um and then when i went and decided hey what is it you want to do um you know sports casting is what came up and specifically play-by-play and going back to syracuse and uh, doing a one-year master's program there and get getting involved in an internship in tv and in uh, radio and just taking on as many experiences as I could. So I guess it was when I focused in and finally asked myself the question of, you know, what is it you exactly want to do? Um, going back to Syracuse was the, was the start of it for me. So I've talked to a lot of different people here about the advantages of going to a big broadcast factory like Syracuse and some others who have taken the small town route where you get a ton of reps. And you've kind of done both. You went to a small liberal arts school. You went to Syracuse. When it comes to developing as a sportscaster, what were the advantages of each? Um, you know, I think I don't know that it had to do with either, really. I mean, I, I didn't focus in on, on, on broadcasting, on media at all at, at Skidmore. It was more of a well-rounded education. I ended up being a political science uh, major and an economics minor um, and kind of just got interested in different stuff. I didn't I didn't do play-by-play at all. It wasn't until 
again, until I got to Syracuse that I started to focus in and, and start to study um, some of the guys. And, of course, Syracuse is a great place to do that with, you know, walking down the halls every day. They have, uh, you know, uh, pictures on the wall of all the great alums that have gone through Syracuse. And uh, the, the list is long. Uh, but you start to study what the, the path those guys took and read some of the books about the art of it and telling the story and giving the score and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I don't think you need to go either route. I think there are plenty of examples of guys who have gone not only small college but small town route. I, I feel like I've done that too because after I got out of Syracuse, I went to uh, Woodstock, Vermont, and did high school basketball for a year. We were doing boys, girls, JV um, and I was doing ski reports and a number of different things just to kind of get by. And then all of a sudden I jumped to San Diego not knowing anybody and trying to navigate my way into sports media from that perspective of, you know, cold calling people and having only one guy in the business. I called every newspaper, radio, TV, sportscaster or sports director. And one guy called me back and that kind of got me in the door and began um, began my career in San Diego. We're definitely going to get more into that later since I'm trying to do something somewhat similar here. But I want to go back to Skidmore mm. and being a political science and economics major. The thoroughbreds. If, if Skidmore you, thoroughbreds, yes. If you weren't in broadcasting and you were out trying to do something that uh, involved Ooh. economics or political science, what would it be? I, I don't think I'd be in the realm of political science anymore. It's uh, <laughs> Politics has turned into just a um, you don't have to go very far to see how crazy uh, Washington, D.C. is. And whether it's at the state level or the federal government, um, all the you know controversies and just hoopla around that, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I've never really thought about it because that's not the path I took. Mm-hmm. Um, I did enjoy economics and, and specifically um, studying you know, economics in, in third world countries. We did a lot of studying about, um, you know, why it is that, that um, poorer countries have trouble getting out of the hole they're in. And it was just, it was really fascinating to me. But that's, I mean, that's what college is all about, finding something that kind of piques your interest um, and then delving into it. And I, I don't know if there would have been a future there, but, um, you know, it's, it's funny, Atlanta, I had not thought about that. Between Skidmore and Syracuse, you said you went out to Wyoming and just kind of skied and lived in a remote area. Why did you decide you wanted to do that? Did you just need a break? Uh, I love skiing since I was a kid. I started when I was five, and um, I almost took some time after high school to go be a ski bum for a couple of years. But my parents talked me into um, getting through college first, then go do that. Um, and that was probably the wise move because as, as a parent, you're always – like, well, if you go off now, you may not come back and go to school. So, um, and plus, I think it's probably easier to make that jump from high school to college right away than trying to get into college after two or three years of not um, being in school. Uh, but it was something I always wanted to do, just kind of get away, be up on the mountains, and uh, just do some odd jobs, to enough to get by. And it, uh, I, oh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was, it was incredible to be up on the uh, Teton Mountain Range and the Teton Pass and uh, – you know, Jackson Hole is one of, I think, the premier resort um, as far as, you know, backcountry skiing, level of difficulty. Just it's just incredible terrain up there. I, I was just uh, I was just back there this summer for a little bit. It's the first time I'd been there in the summer and uh, taking a tram up to the top and being like, wow, I remember what this was like when there's, you know, eight feet of snow on top of there. So um, it was an incredible time. Um, I look back on it really fondly. I shouldn't even tell you my one skiing story. <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> so I've only gone once. Yeah. And it was in uh, Spearfish, South Dakota. Okay. And I had never done it before, but I'd always been naturally athletic enough that I could be average at things, usually pretty easy. So I just took uh, the rented skis up to the bunny hill and said, I can probably figure this out. And I fell down like 10 times <laughs> going down a 150-foot uh, bunny hill. So it was then that I realized this was not uh, something that was going to come easily, and I took a couple lessons, and by the by the end of the weekend trip, I was getting down the initial mountain. Nice. But, uh, yeah, my son's learning the same thing. I mean, it, we all just want to jump into something and be good at it right away, and it's unfortunately things don't work like that. It takes a lot of work and a lot of effort, um, and he was amazed, you know, skiing around here at Highland Hills, which is just in Bloomington to our south, and, you know, that hill's probably the same size as yours 
in South Dakota, and then to take him to Jackson Hole and see what real vertical is like. And uh, a run at Highland Hills, you could probably do one run at Jackson, and, and you, it's probably ten runs, you know, vertical compared to compared to what Highland Hills offers. But you know, he doesn't know the difference, and uh, he's had fun with it. And um, it's it's a fun sport. Hey, I don't know if we're doing a PSA for for for. For, for skiing, but hey, I'm I'm a, I'm a big fan. It's a podcast. We can do whatever Just we do want. Do whatever you want. Have you ever broadcast skiing? No. Would you ever want to? Sure, I would love to. That'd be great. I always thought that um that sort of Olympic sports would maybe be my avenue um to ra- raise my profile a little bit. Um, in Southern California, we had a local uh, cable company that um that covered some of the local high schools: Carlsbad High School, Torrey Pines, uh, La Costa Canyon. And we would not only do football and basketball, but we'd branch out and we'd do soccer, we'd do volleyball, we did water polo. And so I figured, you know, we did a bunch of water polo, and I was just thinking, boy, there's probably not too many guys that can put that on their resume and said, hey, I have water polo experience. And so I thought maybe, you know, one day maybe NBC Sports would come calling, uh, doing some Olympic water polo or something like that. So I always thought one of those sports would be an avenue to get into the big time. So I'm going to go now forward to – you just deciding to leave the East Coast and go to the San Diego, San Diego area to Southern California. What went into that decision? Why San Diego? Was it just because the weather was nice or was there a connection there? Oh, no. It was uh, for my wife, uh, who turned out my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. Um, we had met at Syracuse and she was from California and she asked if we wanted to go live in California. I said yes. And then we chose San Diego and that was that. She was from Sacramento and... Um, we ended up in, in San Diego, and uh, kind of that got us rolling. So let's – you mentioned that you sent – at that at that time, was it emails or letters or phone uh, calls? I think it was just phone calls. I would uh, – yeah, because it was, um, you know, it was 1997 probably, somewhere in there. So it was, it was pretty much phone calls. I thought that was the best way to kind of – letters – Letters oftentimes can get easily discarded or misplaced or, you know, who knows where those go sometimes, especially at, at big businesses like TV and radio stations. So what did you do besides calling everybody just to find your way to get a foot in the door? Or who who did you call besides the stations themselves? Uh, just individual. I got some somehow I knew or I was able to research who some of the talent was, who were some of the sports directors, sports producers, uh, just anybody that would had a connection um, that might be useful. And, um, you know, the number two sports anchor at uh, Channel 8 KFMB in San Diego, his name is Hank Bauer. He's a former Charger running back, uh, special teams coach. He had been the um, – so he'd been on the staff of the Chargers, played for the Chargers, and then he was a, a color commentator on their radio broadcast. He was the guy who called me back and said, hey, I, you know, I don't personally have anything, but here, here's the name of our sports producer, Todd Villalobos. Give him a call. Um, tell him I told you to call, and, and maybe you guys can work something out. So I talked to Todd. Next thing you know, hey, they need an intern. But I was kind of already out of school. But it, at that time, it was just like, well, just just come on over. Maybe we'll just kind of not worry about that. Um, and once they let me in the door, I never left. And, um, you know, six months later, I, or maybe three months later, I was producing the sports on, um, you know, on, on a CBS station in San Diego. So it worked out pretty well. And eventually you got your first kind of what I'm assuming is your first big break where you got to do San Diego State uh, basketball and baseball, was it? How did that come about? Uh, so KFMB, the TV station, also housed in that building was an FM station and an AM station. The AM station had the San Diego Padres. Um, and it just so happened after being in the sports department of TV, um, Hank Bauer had an afternoon talk show host. They were in need of a producer. Uh, once the Padres season started, that guy traveled uh, as their engineer and so they needed a regular host, I mean, a regular um, board op, producer, engineer for the, the sports talk show. And so I jumped down there, uh, and next thing you know, I'm doing that. I'm hosting, um, not hosting, I keep saying that word, but um, I'm behind the glass for that show and Padre Baseball. I'm running the board. And then they started to have, uh, KFMB had the San Diego State rights, so they covered their football and basketball. So I got to know people within San Diego State. Started doing some tape segments for the for the football pregame show, um, and eventually, you know, I was looking for an avenue to do play by play. Well, Ted Leitner, very well known voice um, throughout San Diego, mostly for the Padres, but also for the Chargers and the Aztecs, 
Um, he he was had the monopoly on all that, but baseball. Nobody, I found out nobody was really doing baseball, and so I kind of explored that route. Um, started doing some games on the weekend, like in 1998, I want to say. We did it on their local campus station, but that was basically broadcasting to no one because that, that signal didn't go past the dorms, you know, 500 feet away, and there was no Internet at that time, so people couldn't, uh, you couldn't really stream it. But the following year, I, I, I don't know you know, who the first team was to kind of stream their games online. But uh, we we had to be amongst the first um, connecting to, like, real, I don't know if it was a real audio, a real player up in Seattle. We used to call in, and we'd stream their games on the Internet. The coach, Jim Dietz, at the time, was all on board. He, he was like, yeah, I want to get these games out there. We'll, we'll, we'll take you on the road. We'll pay for your travel. We'll pay for your lodge. Um, you got to take care of your own food. I thought that was a fair deal, and then um, it was kind of off and running from there. You mentioned Ted Leitner, and yeah. he's um, a little bit of a polarizing broadcaster. I'm not personally <laughs> real familiar with his work, but mm-hmm. usually people really love him or they really don't love him. Yeah, he well, is polarizing. That's good. I think that's a. I think that's accurate. What did he mean? I guess what influence did he did he have on you in your career? Well, it was such an interesting style of a broadcast. He was the one guy in San Diego when he was doing, I mean, here's a guy that was doing play-by-play. At one point, he was the voice of the Aztec Chargers and Padres at the same time while doing the 5, 6, and 11 sports on KFMB TV while doing, I think he either had an afternoon or morning talk show at the time. The guy was doing everything. And when you'd see him doing TV, he was the one guy in town and maybe the one guy in the country who would do it completely off the cuff, no prompter whatsoever. And he would just be able to stare at that camera, look at you as a viewer, and tell you what was going on. And you would you wouldn't know the difference. Like they knew when to roll the video. He had a very good relationship with his with his um, director, who kind of knew the cues of when to roll the video and the soundbite and all that kind of stuff. Um, he just had a very unique way of not only doing play by play, but a talk show. And and that's the thing I think when. I don't have a specific guy that I've tried to emulate, but I, I, I love listening to everything, anything I can get my ears on, um, whether it's a community college basketball game or whether it's um, you know a professional baseball game or whatever, hockey. Um, I love listening to the way different guys or girls do um, do their craft, you know, and you take things that you like, and there are obviously some things oh, I would have chosen to do things differently, but that gets you thinking about how you would change things. Um, and so Ted is just, I, I think he's fascinating to listen to. And, and you're right, he is very polarizing because um, it can come off, uh, I think, as you know, it just rubs some people the wrong way. It's maybe not their cup of tea, but I, I find him absolutely fascinating. And uh, I've been around him a lot, not working so much as a partner, but, you know, because he had a monopoly on all these things, he actually had to take some time off. And that allowed me to fill in for him on San Diego State football. I do half the season for two or three years. Uh, same thing for basketball. And so it actually provided, um, even though it didn't lead to a full-time job with the Padres or the Chargers or the Aztecs, um, it did give me some experience, which is, you know, when you're working your way up, that's what you need. You need experience. You mentioned before we started recording that you had a, uh, a say-the-damn-score comment from Tony Gwynn once. Tell yeah. that story. Well, Tony Gwynn obviously um, has since passed and obviously longtime player, Hall of Fame player with the San Diego Padres, and his son, Tony Gwynn Jr., was on San Diego State. Now, Tony eventually, um, big Tony, it gets confusing when you got, yeah, <laughs> and I'm a junior too, so I, I know I know it can get confusing sometimes. Um, so big Tony eventually became head coach of the Aztecs. In fact, it was probably his son's senior year that he probably became coach. Anyway, when Tony Gwynn Jr. first got to the Aztecs, Tony Gwynn Sr. was still on the Padres. And in spring training, while we were playing games, and when Tony was in town, he would be out in the right field bleachers taping every single at-bat for Tony Gwynn Jr. Um, and then they go back and look at it and talk about it and do all those kind of things. Um, so he's in spring training trying to keep tabs on the game. And so I had a couple of guys that were ho- that I knew very well that were doing an afternoon or evening talk show, and they were out in spring training doing their show live from there. And I said, hey, you know, go talk to Tony. Say, is he ever listening to his son's games? And they reported back, yeah, not only is he listening, but he, he's in this – 
He's in this one room where there's a computer um, and it's got a it's dial up a internet connection, and he is sitting there for hours listening to games. I'm like, wow, that is that's incredible. That's awesome to know that someone of his stature is listening to me do um, a game. Where sometimes you wonder if anybody's listening out there. And they said the one thing is you need to give the score more. Tony's upset you're not giving the score. And I'm thinking, oh man, done. Absolutely. I, I got the egg timer the next day, and I was given the score every, probably every 30 seconds after that, knowing that Tony wants, if Tony wants to hear the score, I'm going to give him the score. Do you have any other Tony Gwynn stories? Obviously, one of the best baseball players of yeah. all time. You know, he became the head coach of the Aztecs, and I traveled with him for a couple of years, still doing San Diego State. But I, I never kind of got close enough to him. Um, you know, I, I always, whether it's, I never try to get too close to the players or coaches, kind of give them their space. I, the last thing I ever want to do is kind of encroach on their space, on their time. Um, and so we had a very cordial relationship. I used to interview him before every game, and I'd hang out a little bit. Um, but it was, you know, he had a close group of coaches on that Aztec squad. And, you know, I, I kind of just get, gave him a little bit of space. Uh, but but he, hearing his stories... Oftentimes in the Padre locker room, we'd have a reporter that went down, and um, Tony would talk almost every day if, if you put a microphone in front of him. He was great with his storytelling. And he once had this story about a nightmare um, Padres road trip that just, it, you know, it was plane issues. It was landing at an airport in Montreal at a different airport because they got in so late. They didn't know where they were. The buses got lost. The story goes on for about 20 minutes. And it is just incredible to hear Tony talk about it. And um, he, he just was he had a huge smile on his face. I think I remember the most is just the laugh. His laugh was just infectious, and he just he was so jovial. And um, I I think about about those times a lot. And I wish I could have sort of gotten you know been a little more forceful and maybe saying, hey, you want to go grab some food or something like that. Um, but because it's 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 incredibly sad that um, that he's passed. I I. I I hear that Tony Gwynn Jr. is doing stuff with the Padres, and his playing career is over, and now he's broadcasting uh, pregame, postgame. He's on TV a little bit down there. So if I ever get back to San Diego, I'd love to get down to the Padres and uh, you know connect with him. So your first break getting into professional sports uh, on a full-time basis, you had to move to Seattle. What was the sequence of events that led to that, or am I missing something on the way? No, I'd been in San Diego for about 10 years and kind of had felt like um, that if my, you know, if my next break, if you will, was going to come outside of San Diego or Los Angeles, um, I had been commuting up to Los Angeles and working with Fox Sports Radio for a year, year and a half. I'd gotten a chance to do updates and host shows. I filled in on almost every day part up there, um, trying to take advantage of every opportunity I could. And then, um, and then heard about the opening with the Sonics and the Storm. And um, you know, it's there were over you know hundreds of people that applied for that job and. And had it been just a WNBA play-by-play job, I think they could have gone in a number of different directions. There are a lot of people that are qualified for that. But what separated me, and it goes back to gaining as much experience as you can, not only experience on the mic, but behind the mic, editing, uh, running a board, producing. Uh, They needed someone who was familiar enough with equipment and running a pregame show to be the executive producer of the Sonics Radio Network, which meant being back in the studio, doing updates, uh, hosting a portion of the pre and post game shows, but um, kind of organizing thing there, yeah, everything back there, knowing about engineering a little bit, and that kind of separated me and gave me the opportunity in Seattle. And I was up there for one year. It was a great, uh, not a great basketball season. It was one of the final few years before they moved to Oklahoma City, but um, obviously that led to the opportunity in Minnesota. And how did the opportunity in Minnesota happen? You know, uh, their director of broadcasting, Matt Chapman, had um, you know was in kind of in charge of of finding some qualified candidates for the Timberwolves and Lynx play by play job, and um, I think he started in the WNBA. There are a lot of guys that have WNBA experience that made the jump to the NBA. You look at David Locke in Utah. You look at Craig Ackerman um, in Houston. Uh, Brian Seaman used to be the voice of the Minnesota Lynx. Now he's the voice of the L.A. Clippers. Um, and, and there's a number of other guys as well that have gotten their start um, in the women's league and made the jump to the NBA. And so I was on that list. I got a call from him. And then uh, throughout the course of the summer, they kind of whittled that list down. And um, a couple of weeks before the first broadcast, I was informed that uh, you know I had gotten the job. So it was a quick departure from Seattle and a headfirst leap into the NBA. And going from, I guess you probably went through some pretty 
some pretty bad winter weather in uh, Massachusetts. But being in San Diego and Seattle doesn't get too bad. How much of an adjustment was that? Yeah, I mean, I was still skiing at the time too, so I mean that I'm used to cold weather. And and you're right, the weather in uh, um, in Northwest Massachusetts, you know, at least when I was growing up, was pretty was it wasn't as cold as, as here, but we get just as much snow, if not more snow. Uh, but there's really nothing quite like getting off the plane. It's a chartered plane, but you're getting off the plane onto the tarmac at two two thirty in the morning when it's you know it's 15 below and the wind's blowing at 25 or 30 miles an hour. It's a pretty miserable feeling, especially when you kind of got a little jet lag and you just had a long road trip. Um, I don't think anything kind of pre- prepares you for that. But um, that's that was nothing compared to you know being in the NBA and doing the WNBA games as well and being part of a pro organization like the like the Timberwolves and Lynx. So covering the Lynx, I've always wanted to talk to somebody who is in the women's basketball um, sphere of influence. And I guess, do you have to adjust any of your terminology or the way that you describe things when you move from uh, men's sports to women's sports? And I say that in the way, like, if you're covering, if you're broadcasting for Shaq, you say, you know what, he's a huge guy, uses his wide body and uses Mm. his size. And you maybe don't want to say that about a, a women's team. Yeah, I think that I think there's something to that, um, you know. But for the most part, um, you know, like man-to-man defense, I still say man-to-man defense. It's that's just kind of a generic term in my eyes to the to the defense. But yeah, you probably wouldn't describe, um, you know, some of the particulars of of someone's characteristics like you would in the NBA. So you do have to temper that just a bit. But other than that, I don't think there's a big difference. Um, and I mean, the women's game has just come so far since I started it in, uh, I think, uh, 2007 was my year in, with the Storm. Uh, but getting to, it's, it, what I loved about the women's game, and I still love this, I filled in for a couple of games um, this past summer, and it was great to get back with the team. Because when you travel with the, with the team, there's something about being on commercial flights, which I'm not saying they're better, but you're, you're more a part of things. There's only two coaches, three coaches. No, Head coach and two assistant coaches that travel, plus um, two or three other people. It's a very small group, and you may be sitting in the middle seat next to Lindsey Whalen on your right and Maya Moore on your left. Pretty cool, right? Uh, that's not happening. You're not sitting between Andrew Wiggins and Carl Anthony Towns on the charter flight. They're up front in the in the big cushy seats, and our seats aren't too bad e- either in the back. But um, it's interesting because you can go sometimes on a trip and just not cross paths with NBA players. They get on the plane last, you're on first. They get off first, they're on their bus, you're on your bus. They get to the hotel a little bit before us and up to their rooms. By the time we get in, we are, you know, they're already gone. So it's, but meanwhile, for the WNBA, you're all getting bags together. You know, um, you're helping putting the, load the luggage under the bus. You're helping um, some players sometimes get bags up to their rooms or something like that. It's a much more close-knit group. Um, and it's it's a big it's a big uh, difference between the way it is in the NBA. Adjusting from the speed of the women's game to the men's game was that ever an issue? I think um, niche, If you had had a WNBA game one night and an NBA game the next, I would say yes. But after some time, you just kind of you just kind of jump right into it. And um, if you do enough sports. I think you have to adjust to whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's a baseball game, which obviously is much slower, uh, football, which can be quick at times, and then, uh, you know, a break between plays. Um, I haven't done hockey, but, um, so, you know, all, the, all different sports have their different uh, flows, ebbs and flows to the game. And so there, there is definitely a quickness issue, but uh, to me it wasn't noticeable. The Timberwolves... Last year, as you mentioned earlier in the show, made the playoffs for the first time since, I think, like 2004. Yep. That was the year I was graduating high school. It's been a while. Covering, I mean, no NBA basketball is truly bad basketball, but covering teams that are bad in their league and aren't winning at a high percentage, what's the... I don't want to say how difficult is it, but how do you have to adjust your broadcast knowing that reality? You know, I, I think you have to kind of separate yourself from the wins and losses. No matter whether this team, your team is going to win or lose tonight, um, you still have a show to do. You still have a window of time to fill. And whether a team is 5-34 and 34 or 34-5, and five, that team's still going to take the floor and things are going to happen. Um, and there are always storylines to talk about whether they're individual team wise league wide uh, there is plenty to talk about uh, and so you know 
that's how you get through a 15-win season, a 17-win season, a 16-win season, which I've been through all of those. Um, you, you prepare the same whether you're going to win or lose, and um, you just take that philosophy, and I think that helps. It, it doesn't make you immune from the fact that maybe you've lost 11 in a row and you're looking up at the rest of the league as far as the standings go. Um, that's always going to be difficult to take. But if you're able to separate yourself just a little bit from that and just focus in on your broadcast, again, the, the outcome has no bearing on the time you've got to fill and the job you're being paid to do. Um, so you kind of separate it that way. And I think I think that helps you get it through. John Fokey, our studio host, and I have always joked that, hey, once we've gotten through all those years, if we could get to a winning team, it'll be it'll be that much sweeter because um, because we've been able to figure out how to fill a 30-minute pregame show and a postgame show and game time. Um, you know, and, and some, some of those years, you find other ways, too, within the broadcast to kind of um, keep people entertained. Let's get more scoreboard updates. Let's play some sound from some other games. Um, this can be not only a broadcast about the Timberwolves, and it is, but it can be a broadcast about the league. And people can tune in and find out what's going on. Hey, here's what's going on in L.A. Here's a soundbite um, of Spiro Ditas doing play-by-play. Here's a soundbite from uh, from Cleveland and John Michael doing play-by-play of, of LeBron James. And it's kind of a way to bring people in. We also play a lot of sound on the broadcast. So I'll have my laptop open, and I've got a, a bunch of sound um, in a folder from Carl Anthony Towns, from Jimmy Butler. Hey, let's hear from Jimmy Butler coming out of a break. Hey, here's what Jimmy Butler had to say about the way things are going with the team right now. Or here's Carl Anthony Towns about his, you know, uh, making all NBA team last year. And you kind of mix things up like that. It helps fill the time and it helps bring up different subjects too. Because if you play a highlight or you have a score from another game, you could say, oh, hey, the Lakers are red hot right now. They've won eight in a row. They're up to third in the West standings. And that kind of, you know, helps fill some time while also being informative and not only selling your product, but selling the league as well. When you use sound in your broadcast, and that's one of the things I wanted to bring up, because you do a lot more of that, I think, than most broadcasters at the NBA level do. Where are you finding it? Is it your decision when and how to use it, or is that coming from a producer in your ear? Uh, How do you... How do you do? So how do you uh, handle it? Yeah, so it's myself, John Fokey is our executive producer, and Cal Soderquist is our studio coordinator. And so between the three of us, we will have practices, shootarounds, uh, pregame availability, postgame availability. We'll get it all covered. We carry all that sound. Um, if we don't get it live on the air, we will tape it and put it up on our SoundCloud page so that people can, you know, hear from all the guys after the game. Hear from Tom Thibodeau if they want to after the, for the 61st time after a game. Um, we put all that up there, and then we'll cut up different sound bites that that um, that John or Cal or I will feel might be a good, you know, a good 15 second sound bite that kind of. Um, you know, maybe not just a generic soundbite, but something that's got some meat to it. Maybe an issue that comes up, um, and then John and Cal will send that to me. I'll have a folder for that night's game already. You know, I label them all: Minnesota versus Golden State. I have so I have thirty folders: Minnesota versus you know, name the opponent, and then I can open up that folder. And they'll find sound from the other team, too. So many teams do a great job of, of posting their sound, whether it's on the League FTP site, which has highlights and sound bites, or if it's just on their website, we can go grab sound. You know, oftentimes the games so, come so fast, we don't have time to go hear from LeBron James at their practice facility the day before a game. We're not there. Um, and so they're able to cut up that sound, and then you're able to hear, hey, here's what LeBron James had to say about facing Carl Anthony Towns and the Wolves tonight. Um, so I think I think it it's a lot of work on on their end, on my end, keeping it all organized um, and relevant. And you've got to be quick with you know. It, 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 sometimes I spend the entire break um, a tweeting something, b getting my uh, stat sheet, and then c figuring out if I'm going to play some sound coming out of the break. And the NBA has done a really good job in in years in these last few years of of timing things. There's a clock now that everybody in the in the crowd can see of how long the break is. And so as soon as that hits triple zeros, they're playing. And so now we don't quite have as much time as we used to coming out of a break. But if you time it right and get to a break quickly, you can come back and set something up. And um, I've always had kind of fun with it. And it's something that David Locke, who who hired me in Seattle, he was the voice of the Sonics for that one year. Um, We talked about a lot using sound. Um, Tim Roy in Golden State um, uses it a ton. And and there are not too many other guys that do it. Um, I, I benefit, I think, in this, in that regard, from not having a partner, so I don't have to. It's tough to get that in when you you're taking away time from your, you know your partner who would normally be saying something. 
That was going to be what I was going to bring up next. Actually, you broadcast solo, which is not unusual for a bad basketball broadcast, but maybe is unusual at your level. I don't think you always were solo. What was the yeah. What's the story behind why you're solo? Uh, the first year, 07-08, was um, Billy McKinney was my was my radio partner. He had been doing it for a number of years, former GM in the league. And then he got a job with his good friend John Hammond, who was in uh, the Milwaukee Bucks at the time. And so Billy was um, Billy was in Milwaukee for almost until this last year, so almost ten years after uh, after after he left the one year with me. And then uh, he got replaced by John Lynch, who had uh, been doing no Kevin Lynch. Uh, Kevin Lynch had been doing the voice of the. He'd been working with Mike Grimm with the with the Gophers, and so Kevin was on for a year. And then after that season, um, I think it was right around two thousand, uh, must have been oh eight oh nine somewhere in there. You know, they decided to make some cuts, and unfortunately, Kevin was a part of that. And um, you know, he he handled things the right way and was able to bounce back a few years later. And now he's the. He's the analyst on the pre and post game shows for the for the Timberwolves. But ever since then, they went. Um, we, I've gone solo. It's not a decision we ever talked about. It just kind of happened, and then it's kind of been that way ever since. And so, you know, whether you have a partner or not, you just have to kind of prepare the same way. And it's I think it's helped me in a certain way. Now start to help um, look at things as an analyst would too. I, I'm much more cognizant now of um, rotations that are out there, matchups that are out there. Those are things that. Uh, that an analyst would look at. I'll never be able to see the game as a former player or coach and say, you know, uh, as far as what exact play is going on or um, the action away from the ball. I've still got to be trained to to keep my eye on the ball, so I'm not going to see a lot of weak side action or, you know, be able to describe some of the things, say like Jim Peterson does when he joins me. He's able to see those things. Um, and Jim, uh, a couple times a year, will come over from TV and he'll join me for a couple of broadcasts. We've had fun doing that. Um, so it's it's just something that kind of happened, and we never really talked about it uh, when it went away, and we've never really talked about it coming back. So it's sort of um, it just is what it is. So one of the calls that you've had, and will probably, I'm, I'm assuming you don't necessarily want it to be this way, but that you're really well known for is the uh, yelling at Ed Malloy call. Ed Malloy. <laughs> yeah, it's um, uh, you know, it's not something um, I'm I'm ashamed of at all. It's I, I think it was I, the, the best response I got from almost every single fan. I, I didn't hear otherwise. So this from all the fans out there is that they said, you know what, you described that play like I felt, and that's I think the biggest compliment you can give. Um, it was a it was a moment that the officials blew. You have to be honest about that. I'm not saying Ed Malloy is a, a bad person. I'm not saying he did it maliciously, but hey, we've all got to be accountable. And in that moment, you know, it needed to be pointed out that he missed the call. It was pretty clear when you look at the replay and when the league comes out the next day and says, yeah, he missed the call. So um, me criticizing him, uh, it, it, A, was right. And, um, you know, it just is what it is. And in the re- for the referees, unfortunately, that's a part of their job. They take a lot of criticism and um, you know, it was interesting, too. A lot of people wonder why it got so, you know, oh, Ed Malloy. But it had been something that was building. If you go back to the end of the previous season, um, the Timberwolves had been on the short end of a couple of calls at the end of games. Um, it One was at the end of a game, and I think it was March um, of the pr- previous year, Ricky Rubio tried like a 35-footer at the buzzer. He got fouled by Kobe Bryant. No call. That was not Ed Malloy call. That was... Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember who the official was on that one. I can picture him, but I can't come up with his name. But the next day, league says should have been three shots, and that three free throws would have tied the game. Uh, later, it was a LeBron was still in Miami, I believe. Yes, and it was um, JJ Barea got ejected by Ed Malloy, and and JJ never led. A, he he fouled Ray Allen on a drive to the basket, and never laid a hand on him. And Ed Malloy just just wouldn't hear otherwise. Uh, said, that's oh, a flagrant two. League immediately came out the next day, so that was a wrong call. So there was a number of these things building. And then you had that season. This happened in December. And the storyline for the Wolves, if you remember, was they couldn't win close games. Kevin Love's not getting the calls. Kevin Love is a superstar who's not getting the calls. And the Timberwolves were losing all these close games. And so it kind of built to this moment. And there it is. Kevin Love's got it. It's a late-game situation. We're not getting the calls. He's not getting the calls. Ed Malloy is has had some incidents with us in the past, and boom, it kind of all comes together. 
And so uh, it, the frustrating part was when you looked at the replay, Ed Malloy is the guy who's literally two feet away, and he's just staring. He's staring at Kevin Love and, and, and Sean Marion, who comes over to make the block, which he actually fouled him. But he's not looking at the play. He's not looking at the, at the at the shot. He's looking almost at the feet to see if it was a three point shot or not. Which obviously could go. You could go look at later. That's not the most crucial part. The cru- most crucial part was whether or not it was a clean play. Um, and it wasn't. So it was um it was something that happened. And um you know everybody moves on. I, you have to be honest to your viewers. And I, I felt like I felt like I was able to do that. What was the strangest comment you got from somebody who maybe was a fan or wasn't just because of the the way the the way the call went viral uh i don't think there was anything i don't think there was anything it was just um you know i, I don't think it was that big of a deal i think it's kind of grown over time as kind of this um i don't know it's 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 kind of grown some life since since deadspin picks it up and you know the uh the headline was Timberwolves announcer loses his s you know i mean that's <laughs> that kind of embellished it, i thought a little bit uh, but you know, I think I got everything in there on the call, and, and, and uh, again, I'll, I'll stand by it till the end. So one of the things that I'm personally going through right now is, uh, as an unemployed freelance, I like to say freelance, it sounds better than unemployed, but uh, right. a broadcaster without a full-time job is figuring out side hustles and part-time jobs and all the fun stuff that you have to do to get by in the meantime. Have you had any of those throughout your career? What are some of the memorable ones, maybe? Um, I, I would just say in San Diego, just trying to make ends meet. Um, I was I was doing as many different things as I could. I think I was, at one point I was pulling paychecks from not not huge sums of money, mind you, but I think I was working for four or five different places at once, whether it was high school sports here, it was still running the board. Um, after I left KFMB, I still came back and, and – um, I, I needed a paycheck, and so I would run the board, not on air, for their Saturday and Sunday uh, six-hour shifts. So, you know, you're running the board for a gardening show and a trivia show and uh, the financial show and all these things. Um, but, you know, that helped that helped pay the bills. Um, so I was still doing that, and I was still doing San Diego State baseball, and I was still going up to L.A. and get, getting paid for one, you know, five-hour shift doing Sunday afternoon sports updates. Um, and so you, you piece all these things together, and not only are you trying to get by and pay the bills and pay the rent, but you're also trying to build up that resume. And with many, as many, I always thought that if I could, the more valuable you can become, you know, that's what employers are looking for. Can I get someone who can do a lot of things for me? Can I get a bang for my buck by hiring you. Um, and if you've got producing and engineering and play-by-play and talk show host, and not only in one sport, but multiple sports, well then, you know, then you're making yourself more valuable to an employer. I think you've mentioned a lot about the value of being able to be a producer and run a board and do all the behind the glass technical stuff. And Maybe you said this earlier, and I just missed it or forgot about it since then. But how did you develop those skills? Uh, you know, I don't understand the technical aspects of why, you know, uh, how a board comes together or the mixer that we're we're looking at right here between us. But you learn how where you know this goes here, that goes there, and if something goes wrong, okay, problem solve. Uh, is it let's start here, let's work our way to the wire, then work our way to the headset. You know, you, you take a very pragmatic approach, I think, to it and just problem solve and learn how to be able to, you know, plug things in and figure out how things work. And I think that's served me well because, you know, one, one opportunity I got was um, going up to Alaska for the Great Alaskan Shootout with San Diego State. And it was it was I had to bring my own board. I had to run all this stuff. Um, and it was really the first time I had done everything by myself up there. And I was able to do that. And it it allowed me to probably go do those games. Because otherwise, they probably wouldn't have sent anybody because they couldn't afford to send two people up there. Airfare, hotel, um, you know, per diem, eating, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it, it really, I think, leads to opportunities. And I think what we're seeing in this world, no matter what field you're in, is that, um, again, you, if you can do multiple things, that just makes you more valuable because the days of radio stations in particular hiring people 
you know, a, a, a call screener, a producer, a board op, those days are done. That's, that's one person, and you have to be able to juggle a lot of different things. I know I personally learned most of the stuff that I know about that just through osmosis and yeah. necessity. Did you have a did you learn about that in school or was that just as you're coming up through no, uh, I small think, market radio yeah. you just have to. Yeah, I think when I was doing high school games in Vermont, uh, it was I used to carry this briefcase and again it had a bunch of <laughs> dials and plugs and uh, literally a cell phone that you had to put in a certain way, uh dial the number, you, you hoped that it connected because you had no way of kind of hearing if you had gone off the air so um, sometimes i'd get back to the station and they're like well you cut off in the third quarter and we never got you back i'm like oh great well we missed the you know a great finale and i was hoping to get a tape of that and all that kind of stuff but um everybody's got their own equipment too especially you know uh, equipment has changed a lot just in the last 10 15 20 years and so from reel to reel to carts to tapes to uh, mini discs to, I mean, I still have all a lot of these things still back in my house, just you know that you hope to transfer onto digital someday, but you never get the chance to. Uh, but it's you, you just learn what you can use. And and when I started San Diego State baseball, I didn't have the equipment, so I went to our engineers at KFMB, and they had some old stuff that they used to use for Padre broadcasts. I'm like, can I use that? Can I put that with this? How do I connect to a telephone line? And they're like, hey, you can use this. Here's this wire. You know, you just kind of. You just kind of figure things out, and um, no, I don't think schooling can can give you the experience of how you know what each different station is using, whether it's a small station, big station, whether you're using ISDN. Now everything's almost um, all our NBA broadcasts used to be through ISDN. Now they're just over a um, an internet line, a dedicated internet line. So, um, which is much more cost effective. So every, I mean, it's amazing how technology has changed, and you just try to adapt with it. It's interesting that you say that, and I think this is a problem more for maybe the older veteran broadcasters that have been in it for 40, 50 years. But uh, as you said, within probably a 20-year period, we went from carts and cassettes to mini discs and CDs, and now almost everything is MP3 and digital. Has there ever been – has it ever been challenging for you keeping up with the Joneses with technology? Um, maybe a little bit, but, um, I think I came along at the right time, um, to be able to handle some of those things and also small things like where you are in an arena. A lot of the older broadcasters have become very accustomed to being courtside for every single game. A guy like Al McCoy, legendary voice of the Phoenix Suns who grew up in Iowa is a big fan of, of, of not only mine, but he loves WCCO. He used to listen to it as a kid, um, you know, they and Joe Tate, when he was doing the Cleveland Cavaliers, there were a ton of guys, the older guys, that when they got moved away from courtside up to sometimes the second deck, up to top of the lower bowl, they kind of lost touch with the game. Maybe they couldn't see the court as well. Um, they had a difficult time making that transition. But fortunately, I came along at a time where we were up in most places. And so even at Target Center, I, I don't. I've been to courtside this past year a handful of times when TV's not there, but for the most part, um, that had been the first time I had been courtside for a Timberwolves game there. And so some places we're still lucky to be courtside, uh, but, you know, being up high is not a problem. And really, back to the technology thing, you know, I, you, you just try to – sometimes you spend some of the offseason learning about stuff um, um, and learning how programs work and stats things and all that kind of stuff. When I did a – I got a fill-in opportunity to do uh, my first Division One game. It was in Fargo, North Dakota, filling in for a friend who was uh, having a child, yeah. and it was for Oral Roberts. And I'm pretty knowledgeable about most equipment, but I had a hard time with their equipment, and in a one-time right. shot situation, you don't have a whole lot of time to troubleshoot. Have you ever been in a situation like that where – You've had some fill-in opportunities where you struggled with the equipment and struggled with the broadcast. Uh, yes, WNBA. So in the WNBA, you don't. At least we are. I, th- I think the Lynx are the last team to travel um, and do all their games on radio, which is, I think, pretty sad. Um, it's it's disappointing that's been the case. But um, we've had to travel myself and then John Fokey who's taken over. Um, we've been our own engineers on the road. And there are plenty of times where we've gone to arenas and things just aren't working, whether it's ISDN or a phone line. Um, we've each had to do a couple of games with a telephone, just uh, old-fashioned telephone right up to your head, talking the entire game. And 
Um, sometimes the coaches and the coaching staff will kind of look down at you and they like, they're just nodding. Oh, it's going to be one of those nights. And so we have an assistant coach that joins us for every, uh, halftime Timberwolves and Lynx. And so when Jim Peterson was an assistant coach with the Lynx, uh, we would do halftime sometimes and I'd be on the phone and I'd literally ask a question and hand him the phone and he'd just talk into the thing. <laughs> you know, I couldn't hear what he's saying. He couldn't really hear what I'm saying, but, um, that's old school right there. And you just got to roll with the punches. Sometimes your stat monitor is not working. Sometimes the equipment's not working. Sometimes you can't hear yourself and you can't for the life of you figure out what is, the, what am I missing here? Why can't I hear myself? And now you don't have time to fix it because the game's underway. Um, so there are plenty of times where you just got to roll with the punches. And if it means picking up a phone and talking for two hours, that's what you got to do. That actually happened to me yeah. when I was covering presentation college at the Metrodome for a big dome game. It's the only time I didn't bring a back <laughs> cell phone unit because <laughs> yeah. I'm like going to a pro uh, arena. And then I real, then I learned that the Metrodome was uh, destroyed for a reason. Yeah. It's, um you know, when I was producing and engineering Charger games, I traveled with them. And when Ted Leitner and Hank Bauer would do play-by-play and, and, and uh, color commentary, respectively, um, oh, we I, first off, I travel with three huge cases on a on my own dolly, and I'd have to uh, I'd have to get everything hooked up. It'd be sometimes it'd be a sideline person. You've got to get effects feed. You've got to get attachment to the locker room, referee feed, all these different things. Oh, there were so many times when things were just not work, and you'd just be scrambling, sweating, uh, and you'd have to be ready three hour. We had a three hour pregame show, which not was all generated from the arena or the stadium, but. Um, a large portion of it was. So you had to be ready three, you know, three hours, sometimes noon game, 9 a.m. Sometimes I'm there at 6 o'clock in the morning trying to get things figured out. you got to find your way into arenas, too, which is not always easy. So it's um, you always have to roll with the punches. Oftentimes it never goes according to plan. And um, at that point, you just – and I've done this during a broadcast, too. I think it I think it all fits together. It's just not going right or you're, you're frustrated or something's not right. Just stop, take a breath, and then pick it up from there. Okay. Pretend nobody had listened to the, fi- the to the previous two minutes. Maybe someone's just tuning on now, and now you want to be at your best. And if you just stop, take a breath, and pick it up from there, I think that's um, it, I think that's a good. Uh, I don't know. It's it's worked for me. Do you have any other broadcast horror stories? That's what I like to call them. Where uh, maybe when you were doing small market stuff in Vermont, uh, where just some thing just went horribly wrong in your broadcast that is highly unusual that is mortifying at the time but you laugh at now yeah now i there was a san diego state baseball game we were on a preseason trip to australia which was really nice um and, and i was down the right field line they, they they didn't have any stands or anything like that um, and we were trying to cover all these games and so they put me on top of a um of a trailer down there and ran a telephone line out the trailer which was an office and put me on top of there. But the wind was blowing pretty good that day. And I had all my I had note cards back at the time for each player. And so that was how I kind of put them up on a little card holder. And that was how I had all my notes on those guys. Sure enough, bottom of the first and a wind comes along, blows all my papers. Now, I had gotten up to the top of this thing on a ladder. Someone had to hold it. I climbed up. And then for some reason, they needed the ladder for something else. So the ladder goes away and I'm stuck up there. And so the wind blows and all my stuff goes scattering. And I've got nothing. Bottom of the first, and I've got nothing. And I'm just, I'm going, what am I going to do? And I look down towards, you know, to kind of get back into the game here a little bit and figure out what's going to happen. I see our head coach, Jim Dietz, kind of motion to some of his guys. I mean, talk about a coach who's got his eye on everything. He had seen the wind blow, and he saw all the papers blow. He sends two or three guys down to pick up all the different cards and papers that have blown away. They re-get the ladder. They walk him up, and they give them to me, and I'm able to get organized after the, after the bottom of the first inning. But uh, that was a scary moment because that was early on, too, where I just didn't have a comfort level yet, A, with the sport, B, with the team. Um, there are times where you're doing a broadcast and you can hear the echo in your head. It's it's not the mix minus isn't in, and you're just you're you're you feel like you're going crazy talking to yourself, hearing the echo, um, and uh, you know little things like that. I think those are probably the things that jump out. The, the, the baseball was such a good experience for me because I, I can remember some games where not only the cards blowing away, but you're in New Mexico, the wind is blowing, and it's a it's a twenty six twenty one game. Ping ping. Ping, everybody's hitting the ball. It's going out of the yard. 26-21, four-and-a-half-hour games, and I'm sitting on a card table 
They don't even have a booth for me. I'm just in the stands with a card table with a telephone line, and I'm just sitting there in the sun just melting and just withering, and, and none of the stats mean anything anymore because everybody has got four hits on the afternoon. And, oh, it's just it's a game that would not end. But it does give you great experience. Again, you, you file that away. Boy, if I can fill a four-and-a-half-hour game by myself doing college baseball, well, then you know I can get through just about anything. Do you miss covering baseball? Uh, no, I don't. If I went back to baseball, I certainly wouldn't. You know, I, I'd get back in that mode. That's what I mean. It's not that I wouldn't want to do it. I love the fact that the NBA has a clock. You know, I think that's, um, you know, whether it's WNBA or NBA, um, you know it's going to be two hours, two and a half hours, and then you're done. You can That helps, I think, to put some bookends on what you want to get through in the broadcast. Um, yes, there are some times where you've got a delay. We've we've had a couple of those through the years. Had a game canceled two years ago. Um, this doesn't happen very often. And actually, we had a game. We've had we have a number of games. We had the smoke out in uh, Mexico City with the Wolves and Spurs a few years ago. So there have been some odd circumstances that have happened. Uh, but for the most part, I, I really enjoy. I enjoy the speed of the game, the pace of the game. I feel like I've got a good flow and a familiarity with the sport now. Uh, but by you know, even going in 12 years, I still feel like that perfect broadcast is still out there. That that you can always gain more knowledge about the players, about the teams, about basketball, just in general. Uh, baseball is such a different animal. Uh, but there is something about radio and baseball. They just go. To, I think they go together perfectly. Um, and so there's something I do miss. There's some things I do miss about baseball, but, um, having been now in the NBA for so long, it'd be difficult to go back and make that transition to a game that just has, you know, no end in sight and often can go extra innings and can have multiple rain delays. So I always feel for, uh, Corey Provis and, and Dan Gladden when I, when I tune on the radio and at, at, on WCCO and hear, well, we're in our second rain delay or it's now <laughs> they finished up a game a couple of weeks ago. It was, it was 1230 in the morning. And I'm just like, wow, that's, uh, that's, that's so different than the NBA, but it's, um, it's I, like I said, I think baseball and radio go together almost perfectly. What are the most overtimes you've ever covered? Uh, three. I think we had a triple overtime game against Houston in Houston a number of years ago. Corey Brewer hit a three-quarter court shot to force the first overtime. It was Aaron Brooks was on our team last year. Aaron Brooks was on the Houston Rockets at that time, and I think had his career high of 43 points, and Houston won. But that was an incredible game. I think that was three overtimes, and I think that's the longest I've had. So walk us through your preparation process. When does it start before a game, and what is the kind of key information that you're looking for? Do you do you build your own spot charts, or do you mm-hmm. use cards? What do you do? I have a, a template that I've got, a Microsoft Word template. Uh, Mark Boyle, the uh, radio voice of the Indiana Pacers. Um, I was on a chat room years ago, um, callofthegame.com, I think it was, back in the day, and he offered up to any young broadcaster, hey, if anybody wants my boards, I said, Absolutely. And so I, I have used that as my template. I've changed it a little bit. But he had made these boxes that I, I can't recreate if I tried. So I just would I would just adjust them a little bit, pull a, you know, you kind of pull the line down a little bit or a little bit over. And the, so that's been my template. And I just fill in. Um, I'll have one for the Timberwolves and one for another team. I'll put those on little card stands. So I keep, um, I used to keep my boards all on the table in front of me. And then we got Ricky Rubio a number of years ago. And I realized that, you know, you can't take your eyes off the floor when Ricky Rubio has the ball. And so I would miss plays because he would push it so quick or make some kind of pass. And I'd be looking down where normally that's the time to get in a nugget or look down at something, you know, note you have. Uh, but I realized when we got Ricky Rubio, you couldn't do that because you were missing. So I had to get the boards up so that I could still keep an eye in, in the background of what's going on and still look at my notes. And so I'll print out those two boards. And then I have a couple other sheets that I've got. And preparation is always, to me, it's about when the next game is. So um, if we've got two days before a game, well, then it's two days worth of prep. If it's the next night, well, then obviously it's only, you know, you've like less than 24 hours to prep for a game. Um, on the road, we'll get on the plane and I'll start working on updating the numbers and, and, and notes um, that I've got for our team. And then on the other team, I'll start right after the game on the flight uh, flight back. So I kind of try to maximize all my time. And um, again, you know, you spend a lot of time putting all these notes together, trends, what's going on with the guy. Is he hot? Is he cold? Is the team hot or cold? 
What's the three-point shooting like? What's been the story with this team the last, uh, or what are the, maybe the top three storylines with your team and the other team over these last five games, over the last ten games, over the season so far, home versus road, all these different things um, that you can look at. You spent a lot of time putting those things together. You may not use most of it. Maybe you don't use 75% of it, but you've got it in there. And there are some things that, you know, I, I will get to years later because I use the same boards and you just update it. And maybe I've got a note on, uh, you know, on, I don't know, pick a guy, Sean Marion, who's not in the league anymore. But, you know, maybe I got a note there as rookie uh, my first year in, but that I didn't get to the for, for the first four meetings. And then I, then I kind of have a comfort level. And now, boom, I can recall that. And I bring it up years after I actually uh, meant to bring it up. So um, I think the preparation is good not only for the present day, but you can always uh, build on that, you know, in years to come. What do you do to become a better broadcaster at this point in your career? Oh, just keep going at it. Keep listening to other people. Keep uh, keep listening to coaches, to players, um, finding new ways to streamline your preparation, uh, things to add to the broadcast. Um, obviously, th- things have changed in my 12 years because – even if you just look at something like three-point shooting, how how prevalent it is today compared to the way it was. It wasn't a big deal 12 years ago. Yes, there were some games where people hit a lot of threes, um, but nothing like today. And so now three-point rate is something that um, what percentage of a team's shots come from beyond the arc and how often do they hit them? And corner threes versus above the break threes is something I never used to mention five years ago. Um, and now it gives you some... Um, it gives the listener some specificity of, of where, you know, hey, where are shots coming from? Are they getting enough corner threes? Uh, five man, we try to keep track of, uh, if I have a good stats man like I do at home, Dave Handelin, um, we'll try to keep track of, you know, different units that are out there on the floor. Well, this group, and actually in the box score, you've got plus minus now. So you have an idea that, hey, when the Wolves have towns on the floor, they're a plus seven. They're outscoring their team, the opponents, by seven points. When they go to their bench, uh, this bench guy is a minus seven. So that kind of gives you some... Um, gives you some indication. It's not a tell-all stat, but it I does. I do think it helps paint the picture. So um, you're always trying to evolve, just like the game and the sport is. That's an interesting point. What have you had to change outside of the preparation and the statistics and stuff? Just because the game has started playing at a faster pace with more space mm. and shooting more threes, is the has it been? Have you had to use less with the increased speed, or how does that happen? Yeah, I think you have to. Um, y- you do have to adjust, and sometimes you're not able to. And I think this is what helps not having a partner is that normally when an analyst would talk, that's when the other team is slowly walking the ball up the floor. Then they get into their offense. Then I get it back and describe the play. That doesn't happen anymore. Now you're pushing, and every missed shot, even made shots, teams are looking to get up the floor quickly, um, and you've got to be ready for after one shot happens, there's probably going to be a shot within the next five to ten seconds. So you've got to get yourself prepared. Um, sometimes with good ball movement teams like the Warriors, you know, do you describe every single pass, or can you miss one pass that leads to another? Can you somehow, um, you know, say, you know, here, Jones to – Whoever Jones to Farmer to you know around the perimeter it goes something like that where you don't have to say chest pass here bounce pass here which might get you caught up uh, or get behind the actual play you've got to be able to stay with the play so that means sometimes um, you know playing through somebody to somebody else boom now you're caught up there goes the shot now you can describe it so let's play hypothetical here yep. if you had an analyst with the speed of the game today, how would you try to include them in a way that is good for them and good for your audience? I think the, the duos that are in the league have have been together a long time, have great chemistry, and it's not necessarily on the play-by-play guy to set them up. Because if I have to ask my analyst or set him up every single time with a question, that has just taken up the time that he was supposed to talk. I think you've got to have incredible chemistry with your partner where he can you can finish the play, he knows you're done with the play, and in a brief period of time get in what he wants to get in. Because I think w- what as a listener, I always think about, well, what would I like to hear as a listener? The one thing that drives me crazy is when two people talk at the same time, I can't hear either one of them. And now you've 
maybe you guys were both making good points or finishing a good point, but I, I lost everything because I couldn't I couldn't differentiate between the two voices at the same time. So I, I think chemistry is the biggest thing, and and I think the good duos are the guys that have been together a long time. I think of Chuck Swirsky and Bill Wennington. Those guys have great chemistry. Uh, even Al McCoy and Tim Kempton and Phoenix, uh, those guys really can just – they don't step on each other. They've got a good pace. I think part of being a good analyst is being is knowing when to lay out. There might be two, three, four minutes of actual time where you don't talk. You know that's just that's just the way the game goes. But if you if you have that belief that hey, I he'll handle the play by play. I I know I'll have my moments. They're going to be free throws, right? At some point, or the game will slow down at some point, and that will be, uh, give your analyst um, an opportunity to to chime in then. How would somebody reach out to you if they wanted to do so? Uh, probably at Wolves Radio on Twitter. That's kind of the, the way people have reached out. Um, you know, some people hit me up on email, which is fine. But, you know, I think the initial initially reaching out is um, on Twitter is good. Sometimes the mentions get, you know, lost in there. But, you know, keep at it. And um, I don't know if you can directly – I've never figured out how the DM thing works. You, it, it, you can't I – th- I think you can only send them if you both follow each fo- other. Right. Although people always say their DMs are open. So I don't know how you open your DMs and allow that to happen. But I, I don't know. It's beyond <laughs> me. I try to keep it simple. Even even things like Twitter. Uh, so, yeah, probably at Wolves Radio on Twitter. All right. Once again, we're chatting with Alan Horton, the voice of the Minnesota Timberwolves. Alan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Logan, I appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of SayTheDamnScore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. And remember, iTunes reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps to make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show and just thank them for coming on and let them know that you appreciate them sharing their stories on this podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more. Hi, this is Joel Morgan, the voice of Valley City State University in Valley City, North Dakota. I think it's safe to say that every broadcaster's goal is to be the best they can be at their craft. But just like anything else, if you don't have a game plan, it's hard to execute. Looking to set my goals for the upcoming season, I submitted my audio to the critique crew at SaveTheDamnScore.com. Within a week, I got back a written critique which included areas of improvement, my strengths, and a fresh set of ideas to help improve my broadcast. With the help of the critique crew at SaveTheDamnScore.com, I now have a game plan for improvement. So I suggest if you're looking to get better, step up your game and get a fresh set of ears on your play-by-play, visit SaveTheDamnScore.com today.